I left some papers over here. The Joseph story in Genesis chapters 37 through 50 brings us face to face with some questions that lie at the heart of the Christian faith. Horizontally, among people, can people really change? Can sinners really repent? Can broken relationships really be restored? Vertically, between man and God. Is God really there? Is he really paying attention to us? Does he really care about human suffering? Will he do anything about it? These are questions at the heart of the human predicament, and they're questions that the Christian faith answers confidently. And Genesis 37 through 50 provide substantive answers to those questions, but not, of course, in the form of propositional statements uh, or, or teachings. Rather, it presents us a story, a real historical account, to be sure, where the dealings of sinful men and the workings of a sovereign God are on full display. In chapters 42 and 43, which is what we'll cover today, Lord willing, some of those pieces start to come into clearer focus. And the narrative doesn't beat us over the head with it, and we'll actually have to wait a couple of chapters before there's any explicit theological commentary in the text on the events in this story. But if you're paying attention, you can see the tectonic plates start to move, moving this dysfunctional and now endangered family toward reconciliation and peace that are only possible by the hand of God. And that's good news for us because the human brokenness on display here is not an anomaly, but rather it is emblematic of all human beings. It is emblematic of the human condition and all of our stories. And so the kind providence of God that moves these broken people toward himself and toward one another in repentance and restoration is also not an anomaly or an outlier, but is at work in all times and all places, conspiring for the good of his people and the honor of his own name. So what we see happening in this story is very relevant to us in the strengthening of our own faith, our own understanding of how God interacts with us and our situations and our brokenness. So let's look at these two chapters today and find how we might see his kind providence on display and how these tectonic plates may begin to shift. A quick review, just to run us up to chapter 42. In chapter 41, Joseph provided an interpretation for some strange dreams of Pharaoh, which depicted the rapid arrival of seven years of abundance followed by seven years of extreme famine. There would be an extreme shortage of food for seven years, after seven years of overproductivity in the land. And Pharaoh was pleased both by Joseph's interpretations and by the wisdom he displayed in sort of offering a plan about putting somebody over the, the production and storing of grain during the years of abundance. And so he placed him over the land of Egypt as a governor 
and uh, to oversee this gathering and storing of grain during the years of plenty so that the land would be prepared when the years of famine came. And we read last week that, or last time we were in this passage, that the seven abundant years yielded so much grain that they could scarcely contain it all in the, the storehouses among the Egyptian cities. And they stopped counting and stopped measuring it because there was so much of it. And then at the very end of chapter 41, the famine comes. Chapter 41, verse 57 says, All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Which leads us to the doorstep of the text we'll cover today. Genesis 42 and 43. Two chapters, two trips to Egypt, and 11 very uneasy brothers we find in today's story. Let's look at the first five verses of chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy, among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So we see Jacob's hesitance, his reluctance to send his youngest son, Benjamin, along with his older brothers. We might, you might remember that Joseph was one of two sons born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, who had died in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. And so his favorite wife, yes, that's weird, his favorite wife had only two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And as far as Jacob knows, Joseph, the eldest of, of those two and the former favorite of all of the sons, has been killed because that's what his older brothers led him to believe. And so now there's only one son remaining of his, from his favored wife, the, youngest brother, the younger brother of Joseph, his previous favorite. And so he seems to have just shifted his preferential treatment uh, and disposition onto Benjamin now. So yes, the ten of you may go and risk yourselves in front of the Egyptian governor, but I'm not risking Benjamin. And so he, he holds him back, tells him to go and find grain, but he holds back Benjamin. I love this. Why do you look at one another? Right? There's we're out of food, there's nothing to do, there's nothing to harvest, you're just sitting around. Go and find some food, right? So he sends him to Egypt. And we remember, of course, that Egypt is prepared for the famine only because God gave these prophetic dreams to Pharaoh and then provided the interpretation to those dreams to Joseph, who was able to say, hey, we need to prepare because we've got seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. And so Egypt has grain. And so all of the earth, we're told, are going to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because they're prepared for it. And so the ten older sons of Jacob, also known as Israel, are now on their way to Egypt to buy food. And before we get into their meeting, we should remember an important detail. Joseph has been separated from his brothers for 22 years by this time. 
He was 17 when they sold him into bondage. We were told that specifically. We're told that he was 30 when he entered the service of Pharaoh. That's 13 years that have passed. Then there have been seven years of plenty that have already occurred, so we're up to 20 now. And then we're told later in uh, chapter 45, verse 6, that the brothers come to Egypt two years into the famine. And so 22 years have passed since Joseph was face-to-face with his brothers, who had, of course, done violence to him and sold him into slavery and set off this whole chain of events that they could not have foreseen where it would go. But 22 years of separation and imagining and wondering and thinking and mourning and grieving are all bound up in what's about to happen. Let's read verses 6 through 17. We do have a lot of text to cover today, so we're going to read in kind of big chunks, so bear with me. Chapter 42, beginning of verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Does that sound familiar? Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Why won't they recognize their own brother? Well, remember, 22 years have passed. And remember, Joseph is living like an Egyptian, so he probably doesn't look the same. Probably he's clean-shaven now, which is the way that the Egyptians were, as opposed to these long, bushy beards that probably he'd had before. So, and they assume he's long gone. So, shouldn't be surprised that they don't recognize him as their brother. Verse 9, and Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, And one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Talk about an uneasy situation. We've gone to to Egypt to buy food, and the governor has charged us with being spies and locked us in prison. This is not going according to plan. Now Joseph here recognizes his brothers. He knows who they are. And he remembers the dream that the Lord had given him. You remember the dream? That his own family members would bow themselves to the ground in front of him in a position of elevated authority. How would that have possibly been the case? How would they possibly have foreseen that would be the reality? And yet here we are, Joseph as the governor of Egypt and the brothers of Joseph bowing themselves to the ground before him in homage, seeking his help. 
He recognizes them, but he decides, I'm not going to reveal myself just yet because they clearly don't know who I am. And I think the main reason for that is he needs to find out what these guys are like. Have they changed at all? Has there been any movement in their heart concerning the evil that they had perpetrated against him and their father all those years ago? And so we're actually told explicitly that he tests them, right? He says, we're going to test you by Pharaoh and see if you will come back with your youngest brother. Now, there are a few things that Joseph doesn't know. He recognizes his brothers, these 10 of his brothers who are here, but there's a few things he doesn't know yet. For one thing, he doesn't know whether his father is still alive. They have said, we are all the sons of one man, and our youngest brother is still with our father, but they say they're honest men, but Joseph probably knows a little bit different than that, and we definitely know they're different than that, because what does Jacob think happened to Joseph? They think he got eaten by an animal. Why would he think that? Because they took his robe and dipped it in the blood of a goat and presented it to him. Uh, Is this your son's robe? Yep, looks like he's been torn to pieces. So Jacob believes that Joseph has been killed by a wild animal because his brothers had deceived deceived him intentionally. So when they say, we are all honest men, we're kind of going, I don't know about that. Not so fast. Although Joseph doesn't know what Jacob thinks, or what they told Jacob. But he doesn't know for sure whether his father is still alive. He doesn't know whether they've changed, or whether they feel any remorse for the actions that they committed against him 22 years ago. And he doesn't know whether his younger brother Benjamin is okay. And perhaps he rightly is afraid they might have treated him the same way they treated me. If they had this disdain for me, maybe they treated Benjamin with the same hostility after I was out of the picture. And here, Benjamin is not with them. They've got a story for that. Well, he's with our father. But for all Joseph knows, they've killed him too, right? Or attempted to. And so, this is probably why he insists that they return with the youngest brother in tow. Because he wants to know for himself, is Benjamin okay? Well, Joseph's treatment of them and this accusation of their being spies, like they're representatives of some foreign country coming to see if Egypt really has what they say they have or if they're weakened in the, in, by the famine and maybe could be vulnerable. All of this treatment gets the brothers arguing with each other a little bit and kind of pointing the finger at one another, which helps propel the next steps in the story. And without their knowing, it also gives Joseph a bit more insight into what's going on. Let's look at verses 18 through 28. On the third day, so they've been in prison now for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So he alters the plan a little bit and it's a more merciful plan. I don't know if this was his plan all along to sort of just be really harsh and then walk it back a little bit, or if he had some time to cool down and think about it. We're not sure. We're not told. But at first, it was all of you stay except one, and one of you goes and gets Benjamin and the, or your youngest brother and then come back. Now it's, I'm going to let all of you go, but one will remain. One brother will remain in custody. Verse 21, then they said to one another, this is the brothers among themselves, in truth, We are guilty concerning our brother. 
in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. So when Joseph is speaking to them as an Egyptian governor, an interpreter is, he's speaking Egyptian, and the interpreter is, is translating for them into Hebrew. So they don't know that Joseph actually knows and understands Hebrew himself. Verse 24, then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? Well, Joseph seems to be testing their loyalty here. Rather than having one of you return, I'm going to make it a little bit easier for you to leave one behind and see what happens. So he, he takes Simeon and binds him and keeps him in the prison and sends the rest of them back home. You all go back home and then return all of you with your youngest brother. And then you can get Simeon back. And he knows, remember, because of Pharaoh's dreams, that this famine is going to last about five more years from where they are right now. And so they're almost certainly going to run out of the grain that they have and have to come back again. So he knows they're, they're going to have to return. And he overhears in the midst of this sort of debate, he overhears his brothers speaking with remorse over their past sins. In, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother's blood. And then Reuben steps in and says, I told you not to sin against the boy. Now, you remember Reuben. He's the oldest of the, of the sons. And he wanted to save Joseph back in the day, 22 years ago, when they were conspiring to kill him. But he didn't quite have the courage to say, we should not do evil to him. We need to get him back home. He kind of decided he would try to, to scam his brothers. Well, let's just put him in a pit, and we'll just leave him there. But he was thinking, once the brothers go on, I'll come back and rescue him. Well, that didn't work out, because while Reuben was away, the brothers sold him into slavery. That was Judah's idea, you might remember. And so when Reuben returns and Joseph is gone, he says, oh no, what's going to become of me, because Joseph is gone. And so they're arguing with each other, and there's a recognition of their guilt. We are guilty concerning the blood of our brother, and this is why this distress has come upon us. There seems to be some recognition of the principle of sowing and reaping. God is not mocked. That which you, whatever you sow, that will you also reap. So they've sown evil and deceit and violence, and now it's coming back upon them. That's why we've been in prison. That's why another one of our brothers is being held in custody, and we have to go back and return with Benjamin. This is terrible, and this is all happening because we have done wrong. 
And Joseph weeps upon hearing them speaking this way. Because for all he knows, they're all at peace with the decisions that they've made. And there's no angst among them whatsoever. But here they are, acknowledging their guilt and clearly wrestling, even among themselves, whose fault it is. And he weeps upon hearing their conversation because I think he recognizes the seeds of grief and repentance. Maybe he begins to hope here for restoration with his brothers. Maybe it's possible. Maybe this is real sorrow over sin. And there might be a hope of reconciliation. Do you have that same hope? Do you believe that restoration is possible in the broken relationships in your own life? Might God move in the hearts of those who have sinned against you, leading them to real godly sorrow and repentance? We're told in verse 25 that Joseph has uh, his steward put the money that they had paid for the grain back into their bags without their knowledge. He doesn't tell them, I'm going to give you your money back. But he has them secretly put all of their money back in their bags. Is this a test? Maybe. Maybe he wants to test their honesty. Will they, tell, will they let us know that a mistake has been made? You know, a bank error in your favor, collect $200, right? Will, will they tell us, hey, you gave us too much money and we needed to bring this back? Maybe it's a test. Maybe, and I actually think this is more likely, it's just kindness. It's just a simple kindness. Because he actually doesn't just give them the money that they paid. He gives them extra provisions for their journey. I think he's just taking care of them. That's what I tend to think. And the brothers, recognizing with remorse their own sinful actions toward Joseph, begin to argue among themselves. Such that they even find the news that money has been returned only in one of their sacks. They only know about one of them so far because only one of them apparently looks in his bag when they stop along the way. And he says, oh no, the money is back in my sack. And do they say, praise God for his provision? Do they say, wow, that governor in Egypt was so kind to us? No, they say, what is this that God has done to us? He's after us. He's out to get us. In actuality, of course, God is not punishing them. He's providing for them. And sometimes, I think even in our own lives and stories, God's provision might seem bitter at first. It's not exactly what we asked for. It didn't come in exactly the way we expected it to. Before we really understand what he's doing, we might bristle at his provision. The, hymn, the old hymn says, The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Trust God's provision, even when at first it seems strange. Well, in the next few verses that, that, that close out chapter 42, the brothers return home and they report back to Jacob what has happened. Let's look together, beginning at verse 29. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men, we have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your household, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. 
Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. So they just repeat the whole story. Everything that happened, everything that the Egyptian governor said to them. And now in verse 35, they begin emptying their sacks. All right, well, let's, let's take stock of what we have, put stuff in the pantry, right? Verse 35, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. The very same reaction on the part of Jacob as well. What's going on? Why do you still have all this money? They're going to come get us. Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. The other ten are going, what am I, a ham sandwich? If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol, which is the grave, the place of the dead. If something happened to Benjamin, I would not survive. I would just die with grief. That's what he's saying here. So he's ready to ride off Simeon. Well, he's gone too. Check one, Joseph. Check two, Simeon. I'm not losing Benjamin too. So you're not going back. He simply assumes that Simeon is done for. He gets to stay in Egypt. Hope he's well. Now Reuben, again, oh Reuben, he tries to step up. He tries to do the right thing. But he doesn't quite get it right. You know, in verse 37, he's going to be courageous. He's the oldest. He should be the leader, right? Okay, I'm going to step in here. If I don't bring Benjamin back to you personally, you can kill my two sons. You, you, can have, you can have them, right? That, that, that's not quite it. That's not exactly putting yourself on the line. T- take them. May, may the blame be on my, my children. Just like his attempt to rescue Joseph. I, I, I want to stop my brothers from doing this evil, but I'm not quite courageous enough to actually confront them, so I'm just going to look for a side door and kind of scam them out of this. And here he is. I want to do the right thing. I need to be brave. I need to protect Benjamin um, gosh, but if something happens, I don't want it to be on me. So how about my kids? Right? Not, not quite the right response. Jacob won't have it. I will not let him go. And so chapter 42 ends with just kind of a lack of closure, lack of certainty on what's going to happen. They're obviously going to start eating the grain that they returned from Egypt with, and it's going to run out. Jacob doesn't seem interested in thinking about that. Nope. I'm not going, We're just, let's just see what we have, and it'll be fine. We'll do without Simeon. And then chapter 43 begins, after some time has passed, we don't know exactly how much grain they bought and how long it would have lasted, but enough time has passed that all of their food that they bought from Egypt is used up. Look at verse, verses 1. We'll do 1 through 14 of uh, 43 right now. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, Their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, "Uh, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy, buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. 
For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Now Judah is going to speak up. Judah becomes the spokesperson here. The only way it's possible for us to go back and stand in front of that Egyptian governor again is if Benjamin is with us. So if you want us to go get food, you're going to have to be okay with this and let Benjamin go. Verse 6, Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Right? You could have just not mentioned him and this all would have been fine. And they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in, in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? So they defend themselves. And there's details here about uh, Joseph questioning them that we didn't have in their encounter in chapter 42, but we actually do learn later in the next chapter, chapter 44, when Judah speaks with Joseph, he actually refers to questions that Joseph had asked. So I don't think this is like a, uh, an inconsistency. I think we actually find here that chapter 42 just didn't record every detail of the conversation. And so when he refers to the fact that this man asked us specifically, is our father alive? Do we have another brother? Those things actually did happen. They just weren't recorded in chapter 42. Let's keep going. And Judah said uh, to Israel, his father, this is verse 8, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. This is where Reuben fell short. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. We could have been there and back already a couple of times. And we're going to bookmark this because we'll actually spend a little bit more time with Judah next week. But I hope you recognize how surprising Judah's behavior is here, given the kind of character we saw from Judah the last time we hung out with him back in chapter 38. Let's keep going. Verse 11, Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds, whatever they can find you know, from the land. Take double the money with you what you owe them, and twice that, carry back with you the money that was returned to the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So Judah, the fourth-born and previously an influence for evil among the brothers. It was his idea, remember, to sell Joseph. Hey, we could actually get some money for this. Offers himself as surety for Benjamin's safety. Which, in contrast to Reuben saying, here, take my sons. Judah says, this is on me. If I don't bring it back to you, hold me responsible forever. What a contrast with the last time we saw him. Selfish, immoral, hypocritical. And now here he is placing himself on the line for the sake of Benjamin's safety to ease his father's mind and to do what needed to be done to preserve and protect the family. This is a different Judah. More on that next time. And so Jacob sends them along to Egypt with repayment for what was in their sacks and double that amount and some gifts. Take as much as you can to try to just an olive branch here. Like we're, we're your servants. We're not trying to 
harm you. We didn't try to deceive you. Try to make, make nice with the governor there. And then he prays, and this is a good prayer, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. If there's going to be a favorable outcome, it's going to be because God has granted mercy. It's a good recognition on Jacob's part. And he resigns himself, sort of perhaps cynically, to the, the inherent risk in the plan. If I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. I guess there's nothing, nothing to be done about it. Look at verse 15 through 25. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know? Excuse me, I think I skipped a page. <laughs> yep, sorry. Verse 15 of chapter 43 says, So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. He's just after our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He, that is the steward, Joseph's steward, the guy who's in charge of Joseph's stuff, he replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. So I hope you, I want you to notice something about Joseph's brothers here that keeps happening. It's kind of a recurring theme with them in this story. There's three occasions in this passage where something good, presumably good, happens to them, and they interpret it as God's judgment on them. Back in 42:28, one of them learned that the money was in his sack, and we talked about this a few minutes ago. One of them learned that the money was in his sack, and they said, oh no, what has God done to us? And then in verse 35, when they got back home, to Jacob, and then they all unloaded their sacks. They found that all of them had the money that they had paid for the grain, and they were afraid. Oh no, what's going to happen? What's God doing? And now, in chapter 43, verse 18, they are invited into Joseph's home. And it says they heard that they would eat bread. So they know they've been invited into his home for a meal, but they don't interpret it that way. They go, oh man, this is a trap. He's out to get us. He's going to fall on us to seize us and to make us his slaves. This is all coming back on our heads. The passage of time does not salve the wound of a guilty conscience. A guilty conscience finds no rest. And it cannot receive blessing without assuming that there's bad news around the corner. 
a person running from his shame will always be looking over his shoulder in fear that it will overtake him. Maybe you can relate to that. The only way to offload shame is to own it, confess it, and carry it to the foot of the cross. And his brothers have been hiding from it for these 22 years, kind of pretending that it didn't exist. And now it's like, in their minds, it's coming back to get them because a guilty conscience has no rest. Well, now they're going to present the gifts to Joseph when he returns to the house. Let's look at verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there, overcome with relief that Benjamin is okay, right? that he's, he's safe. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. See this kind of putting on a, okay, scene. All right, got to go back to being the, the Egyptian overlord here. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Well, Joseph weeps upon seeing Benjamin overcome with relief that he's alive and well, but he can't yet reveal his identity. His real, he's got to kind of keep up the guise a little bit longer, so he, need, he leaves to, to, to cry. He leaves to weep. I want you to start paying attention to Joseph weeping, by the way. We've seen it twice so far in these chapters, there will be five more occasions, seven in total in this chapter, in this story where Joseph is said to weep. Just bookmark it. And Egyptians apparently have a little bit of racial superiority complex, and so they refuse to eat at the same table with foreigners. So in order to kind of keep the, the, the guys up, the brothers have to eat at one table, and Joseph has to be at an Egyptian table, and the other Egyptians with him have to be at their own table. So they can't, they can't mix, and so he keeps up the, the ruse for now so that they'll and not uh, recognize his identity yet. But notice this detail. He seats them according to their birth order, to their amazement. Why would they be amazed by that? Well, think about this. The 12 sons of Jacob were born to four different women, likely in a relatively short period of time. So none of them are real far apart in age, probably each one maybe a couple of years from the nearest brother. And 22 years have passed. And people change in 22 years, right? So uh, you, you, you try arranging a group of like middle-aged men who are all a couple of years different from one another in terms of their birth order, 
you're not likely to succeed at this. So the, obviously Joseph has inside knowledge that they don't know that he has. Maybe they think he received this by divination or consulting with the gods or something. You know, we, they, we don't know exactly what they think. But they are amazed that Joseph is able to, to seat them in the correct birth order from oldest to youngest. And we're told that he gives Benjamin five times their portions. Maybe this is another test. Will the older brothers disdain their youngest brother for this preferential treatment? Well, perhaps not, because we're told immediately after that they drank and were merry with him. Unaware, of course, of the true identity of the Egyptian governor in whose home they are now feasting. Can people really change? Can sinners really repent? Can broken relationships really be restored? As the story unfolds, we'll have compelling answers to those questions, but it's right for us to be wondering and looking with this eye as we continue. I want to return for just a moment in conclusion to the bewildered brothers after Joseph has invited them into his home for dinner. They assume that they're about to be imprisoned for having taken grain on their first visit without paying, since their money was still in their sacks mysteriously. And in their fear, they plead their case to Joseph's steward. And instead of condemnation, they find reassurance. Instead of being imprisoned and condemned as they expected, they are assured that their debt has been paid. They are restored to their imprisoned brother, Simeon. They are bathed. They are given a rich feast to enjoy at Joseph's expense. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, this is our story too. When we come to Christ in faith, carrying the guilt and shame of our own sinful rebellion against God, trembling to enter his presence for fear of judgment, we are met instead with mercy and with kindness. Instead of condemnation, we find that our debt has been paid. Instead of retribution from God, we find that we are restored to our Creator. Instead of the stain of a guilty conscience, we are cleansed and made new. Instead of languishing in our spiritual poverty, we are given a seat at His table and invited to feast with Him in joy forever. Friend, have you turned to Christ in repentance and faith. Confess your sin and carry it to him in prayer. Invite his cleansing and renewing grace to restore you to him forever. Hear the invitation of Jesus himself in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Sinners and saints, don't be afraid. Draw near to God with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and your bodies washed with pure water. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this grace that you bestow upon us in Christ. Thank you that you've made us new, that you've cleansed us, that you've restored us, that you've forgiven us our debts. 
cause us by faith to stand more confidently upon that ground. Aware of your acceptance and love of the welcome we always receive through Christ. If there's any in the room today who have not turned themselves, their hearts toward you in faith and in repentance, we ask by your spirit that you would bring conviction and extend that welcome invitation to them. Draw them to yourself that they might receive new and eternal life and feast at your table forever. In Christ's name, amen.